from the red and black, this is the front page. Today is Friday, April 16th. I'm Sherry Leong, the red and black editor-in-chief, filling in for Sarah today. My parents immigrated to the United States in 1995. My dad came on scholarship to Florida State University. They didn't come with much, like many immigrants, making ends meet working at Chinese restaurants which served foods they had never heard of before. General Tso's chicken, for example. Cut to five years later, I was born in the suburbs of Atlanta. I grew up in a majority-minority community with people who looked like me. I went to classes of mostly Asian students. All of our family friends were Chinese. I was raised by Asian women in my community, not the ones depicted in media and on TV. I grew up in the Asian grocery stores of Duluth, just half an hour from Gold Massage Thaw. I have mutual friends with Randy Park, whose mother, Hyun Chung Grant, was killed at Gold Spa. And one month ago, on March 16th, my community came under attack. Eight people were killed that day in spas and massage parlors across Atlanta, six of whom were Asian women. Soon Chung Park, Hyun Chung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Yong A Yu, Xiao Jie Tan, Dao Yu Feng, Delena Ashley Yan, and Paul Andre Michaels. Police sympathized with the shooter in a press conference the next day. He had a quote-unquote sex addiction. He had a bad day. It wasn't clear if the shooting was racially motivated. The shooting illuminated aspects of systemic racism against Asians, specifically women, in the U.S. The fetishization of Asian women, perpetuated by racial and gender stereotypes. The model minority myth, which trivializes anti-Asian racism, and the heightened xenophobic hatred against Asian Americans fueled by inflammatory statements during the pandemic. I am the only Asian editor at The Red and Black. I am also probably the first East Asian editor-in-chief. This past month, I've been trying to process anything and everything from my identity to my role in this coverage, my parents, and my future profession. But as I'm processing, I've been in awe of the personal essays that have helped me realize parts of my identity and that my upbringing was a part of a collective experience. Of the Asian reporters who stepped up to the plate and served their communities when no one else could. I've been in awe of my friends too, including Rachel Priest, a red and black alumna who is on the podcast today to talk about her column she wrote after the shooting. A week after the shooting, I called Rachel to chat with her about her column and also the Asian experience in the U.S. We talked about media coverage, her identity as a transracial adoptee, and also the role we played in the coverage. Rachel was one of the first Asians I'd ever met at the Red and Black, and we grew up only a few minutes from each other. We talked for nearly two hours, but here is a snippet of that conversation. First, we're talking with Rachel Priest, former editor at The Red and Black and now a content editor at The Bitter Southerner. Last week after the shooting, Rachel wrote a column for the magazine titled A Target on Our Backs. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me, Sherry. It's so good to, to be here virtually and to talk about this. So thank you so much for having me. Can you talk a bit about your role at The Bitter Southerner? And I know it, you mentioned you're a content editor, but like in what capacity do you get to write? And this is my first time actually writing a story for them, which is, you know, obviously 
not this is not what I would have wanted to write about um, but I was just really honored that they gave me the time and space to write about it you know we publish a lot of personal essays and stuff like that which I just think are so so cool but something that I didn't we didn't, you know, we didn't get a lot of experience, or at least I, I didn't, in the classes I took um, writing at UGA because I think, you know, journalism for so long has been very, you know, just be unbiased, stick to the facts, like, you know, you're not supposed to insert your own opinions, which I definitely agree with in, you know, news, news stories, but I think there is, you know, time and place for more personal type stories, and I think they, they do resonate with people in a different way. Um, and I think especially because of the pandemic and people have been so isolated, I think a lot of people, you know, are craving that emotion and, you know, want to feel some sort of connection to the writing, which I think, you know, the Bitter Southerner and, you know, the work that we publish and help writers with, you know, provide. So that was really cool to be able to do that in that sense as well. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of writing, like, can you talk about how you wrote that article? What was the process like? I know for a lot of us, like, I didn't sleep until 5 a.m. that night. Like, I know yeah. it felt like a lot was happening in a very short amount of time. And it did happen in the evening. And there was a lot of, like, thinking and ruminating about everything. So, like, can you talk about that process of deciding to write something? Did you intend to write something that night? What was that like? Yeah, so... You know, I, it's, you know, funny to say that you were up that late too, because I, you know, I messaged you probably, I think it was like 11, it was kind of late, but it was kind of when I was finally really sitting down and just really, you know, like sitting with it. Um, like I, I mentioned in my article, like, you know, I think I got the notification around like five or six, but, you know, both my roommate and I were just, we didn't really talk about it. We were just kind of like, okay, let's just talk about other things, which, you know, I think was, was fine. Um, but then later that evening, like I was sitting in my room alone and just, you know, I was on Twitter, which, you know, drew, doom, doom scrolling, but at the same time, like trying to be informed and also knowing that this impacted like my community and me and it was close. I was, I was up late that night, like just watching everything and trying to process it um, and trying to figure out, you know, I think that, yeah, there was like a grieving process I had to go, I had to go through and it definitely started that night. And the next morning we had our meeting and then I called my the managing editor, um, Justina, I called her, you know, a little bit after that. And I was like, hey, you know, hi. And she's like, are you, you know, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? And I had to be really vulnerable. And I was like, actually, I'm not like, I, I was not doing okay that day. Um, I, I couldn't focus. I was just thinking about everything. And I was like talking to her and I was crying. And so that was like really emotional, but she was so great. And I told her too, you know, I was like, I would like to write something for this. And, you know, my team, is so supportive and so great and I but I mean I'm the only I guess Asian American um, or Asian person on the team so I, oh, I wanted to write something and I thought that you know as a as a publication that is trying to tell the story of the south you know obviously Asian voices are part of the south and so I really wanted to be able to, to speak to that and I you know proposed to you. I was like if it's not me like that's okay I would but I put out that I would want to do that and she was so great and she's like you know I would have never asked you to because it is a lot um but she's like I'm glad that you are and so she was like you know just take the day do whatever you need to do and so I honestly spent most of that day writing um you know I think for me writing is kind of a form of how I work through work through a lot of things um which is good because I guess it's my job but um so that's kind of how that's kind of how the story came about and how that happened but I'd love to hear kind of about you know if you don't mind like 
how you were kind of processing that night and you said you're up really late and then how I guess like kind of going to the newsroom the next day like how how is that for you as you know the editor-in-chief of this publication again like is covering students at UGA who are impacted by this yeah well first I want to thank you for reaching out because and I think there is like a time and place for reaching out like if it were just a random person reaching out I yeah. think weirded out but I it did it was really nice to hear from you and like I remember your message specifically wasn't even under the pretense of the shooting it was just like how are you as a person and I think that that was like really nice to hear from you too because like I said like you were one of the first Asian people I've ever seen at the Red and Black and like (laughs) probably still one of the only people like one of the only East Asians I've seen at the Red and Black so like it was really special to hear um, you reach out to me and also read your column. Like I would have never guessed that was your first byline. It's kind of an insane byline to have for your first time. But um, so as far as that night went, we had production uh, for Red and Black, obviously. And it was, like, it was a really late night and I was eating some late dinner and I didn't even know it happened. Like oh, really? up until this point, it's probably 11 p.m. Like oh, wow. we're in full production mode from like the minute I get out of class at 5:10 on Zoom. Like I don't touch Twitter. Like it's mm-hmm. like full on production mode. So I had absolutely no idea. And I was eating. I was talking to Anila. I just opened Twitter, and it was just like I first saw it on the breaking news. Yeah on the side, and I was like, "What in the world?" And I look closer, and it's. It's interesting, it comes at an interesting time because our paper production issue was for a year in COVID. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I really wanted to emphasize in our issue was like the rise of Asian American hate. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, obviously we didn't have the context of the shooting. So like there were like very close repercussions that we didn't know about when we were producing the issue, but it was still very timely. at the front of my mind mm-hmm. when it happened and so I like it did take me a second to process too the next day was like probably weirder for me because I realized we would have to cover it and mm-hmm. I tried to stay out of it like I, I trusted the news editors and like my other editors to handle it themselves I really did take a step back because it was a lot for me to have to consider the implications of our coverage and also think about like what this means for me what this means for my parents like there was a lot that I was thinking about suddenly something I grew up with for the last 20 years was newsworthy like the part where you said that um, like giving voice to the voiceless but it implies that somebody is voiceless like that was growing up like I grew up around Asian people. So there was no such thing as like voiceless Asian people. Like mm-hmm. our community was filled with Asian people. Like Yeah, everyone says like representation matters, but I think that's so true because I had never been in such close community with so many other people again that like were my age and looked like me and that dressed like me and mm-hmm. that knew the things that I knew too, you know, it was just, it's just such a weird experience. Like, you know, I think that there's a stereotype of Asian people being, you know, quiet or, you know, not speaking out, but you were like, you know, that wasn't my experience because you, again, you grew up in this community that was so vibrant. Yeah. It's like reverse conditioning for me because it's really interesting that you like, I feel like you went like back and forth and back and forth, like Mm -hmm. Minnesota, Lambert, but also like UGA is not the most diverse place. 
no, yeah. the journals of nature. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'd love to yeah talk with that about you too, because you know I yeah like I think that you and our you know my friend Katie were the only other two Eastern Asian people that I knew or Eastern Asian woman I would say that I knew um, and Grady and so at the Red and Block you're working on like diversity and inclusion initiatives so I'd love to hear like more about those without going on too much of a tangent obviously a significant aspect of these diversity and inclusion initiatives is figuring out how to recruit diversity in race Asians included and I I don't want to say that other races don't experience this but Asians and I think immigrant children in general have the particular challenge of parents or cultural expectations and so when we're addressing diversity, I feel like that's something we don't talk as much about. I, I mean, I don't think Grady is doing everything they can do. I do feel like sometimes I'm in a room and I like don't even notice I'm the only East Asian mm-hmm. in the room or East Asian woman in the room. That's not even like the thought that crosses my mind sometimes and it should be. But um, at times I also think there's like the question of um, how do you get parents to send their children into journalism, right? Like that's not something we can necessarily address in the newsroom. But again, like the conversations around Asians have been so one-dimensional that like we can't even bring this up quite yet. I think we need to like obviously address the racism first before we talk about stuff within our community. As someone who, you know, I think that transracial adoptees kind of exist in this, this weird space because I share a lot of experiences with, you know, with the rest of the, Asian community, but I also don't share some experiences um, because my parents are white and my family's white, you know, in that sense, I, I can't speak to that side. You know, like when you were bringing up about, you know, there is, you know, parental expectations. There's a lot of things I can't speak to because I don't have similar cultural experiences. Um, so I think that's in some ways that, you know, like I said, I have been able to kind of distance myself or a lot of the things that have been happening to other Asian people, especially elderly Asian people, I mean, all these attacks that have been happening, obviously they're terrible and, you know, I read them and I, you know, it's so hard and, I, you know, it hits me, but also it's not in the same way because I don't have to worry about my parents. Like my parents are, you know, I hope, I mean, they're, they're fine. <laughs> Again, they're, 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 they're okay, um, at least in this sense. I think it's really interesting like the relationship between transracial adoptees and their parents. I think it's like something also parents might not be equipped to tell their kids, which is like understandable. Yeah. Not like, yeah, I 100% agree. I, and I, you know, hopefully it's changing. I like wrote an article this summer where I interviewed, um, you know, some other transracial adoptees who are mostly adults, but then I also was able to talk to um, someone who worked at, or who currently works at the adoption agency my mom adopted me through in Minnesota. Even since she had started working there, there's been so many changes in the way that they approach international slash transracial adoption and the way that they're trying to prepare parents to adopt these kids, which I think is so cool. And um, just, it was just like really, I guess, uplifting to hear that they're, you know, actively working to make this a better you know, better experience for these adoptees. Um, because obviously, you know, like I know my mom, my parents love me. Like I know that, and I know that other transracial adoptees will say the same, but I would also guess that a lot of them, they're like, you know, would say that they just weren't 
they just didn't have conversations about race because like you said like that our parents just didn't know how to like they had never experienced what it was like to be you know an Asian in my case like an Asian in an Asian woman growing up in a mostly white place um and then never had to even think about like the challenges that could arise or how I might feel and all you know all those things um but it was cool to hear that you know they've just changed a lot of the things and made some more classes mandatory and are trying to encourage the parents to like talk about race or trying to prepare you know give them resources to talk about race I did want to ask you about like we talked about this briefly but like giving voice to the voiceless um I think you hear things like Asians will not be quiet anymore they're like standing up for themselves but you never think about it like they have already been standing up for themselves just like people haven't been listening so like can you kind of talk through coming to that conclusion or like that idea coming to your head um and like when you kind of first realize that again I think there's just like this like trip of going into media and you're like I'm gonna change the world or I'm gonna like shed light on this community when you're saying things like that you are kind of putting yourself above the community in a sense and being like I'm going to speak for them or I'm going to do what they couldn't do for themselves um and then I think a lot of times obviously that's rooted in good intentions um and you know a lot of times that is uh, you know I'd say in the past like national media has been able to you know again like bring light to issues that haven't been covered um, or haven't been or, you know, aren't seen by you know a national audience or a global audience but you know as I've you know grown up and become become more aware and more conscious and I you know I'd say especially in light of just this past year um, you know just like taking a step back from that and being like wait a minute like you know this is probably not the right way to look at this um, and not the right way to look at this industry and not the right way to approach approach stories or approach coverage and stuff like that again like understanding that this, these stereotypes about about Asian um, people are that again like that they are quiet and I, I was you know we mentioned this a little bit ago but since I, when I did write the article for the red and black about you know Asian stereotypes I did do a good amount of research about stereotypes that exist within in America about Asian people um, and so I, you know, again, like that was something I kind of knew going into this when I, you know, was kind of sitting down to write this and history is my other major. So I love like bringing in more context and especially historical context into a lot of what I write. Um, and so, you know, I, when I sat down to write this, like I knew I didn't want it to just be a personal essay speaking to this moment, because again, like it's not just this did not exist in a vacuum. Like this is not like one incident that happened at random. Like there was so many things that led up to this. Obviously it was accelerated in the past year because of harmful rhetoric surrounding like the coronavirus um, and, you know, just rising, you know, anti-Asian racism. But these are things that have happened long before this year. Like, and like this, a lot of people are kind of hearing about these things for the first time now, but it's not the first time that this has happened. And I obviously, I touched on like a couple of big things but there was, there's so much that happened outside of those things too that were equally as devastating and horrible. Um, and so again, kind of like having all those in my mind um, as someone that is a part of this community, I have been following this pretty closely this past year. And for my capstone um, at Grady, I wrote about 
violence toward the Asian American community in the light of the pandemic. And this is back last, last March and last May, um, when I think it got published last May. And so again, like this is, this is almost a year ago that I wrote this. Um, so I had kind of been aware of that then. And then obviously I kind of followed it throughout you know this past year and people have been speaking out about this and like I know that people have been writing about this and I know people are like concerned about this and I know that people you know again like these are people's you know grandparents or parents or brothers or sisters um and so knowing that obviously it's not like they were just like oh this happened like you know like I'm just obviously these people were speaking out and like these people were concerned and they we're, we're feeling scared. And so these are things I have been thinking about. Like, it's not like I just sat down and was like, I'm just gonna like write this. But I think this is kind of a culmination and just all these things happening and like thinking about them and, you know, thinking about instances here and there. Um, but then finally, like when I sat down, I kind of just all like came out again. Like, sorry, that was like very unhelpful. No, sometimes you just can't explain the writing process, but I think like everything makes sense. I, that made a lot of sense to me. If we trust people to report about their identities, like you might open the way to like more empathetic reporting. I, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I hope, you know, I hope so too. And, you know, I'm aware that it's not going to change overnight and that there's a lot of things that need to be done. Like there's a lot of work to be done um, on, on everyone's part. People of color are like kind of expected to like have the solutions for all these problems. It is a weird like position to be in where you're expected to like have these answers. You're expected to like create a way for future journalists or future generations or you know whatever. Um, but also being like, oh, I don't you know, I don't feel qualified or I don't, I don't know what I should say or what what I should do or. Yeah. There are times where literally like will be working on an initiative or something like that. And I just will sit there. I'm like, I don't know the answer to this. Like I can think through like 30 hypothetical situations, but like, I don't. And again, it comes back to what I was saying before, like, and I think we can both relate to this. Like we came from very privileged communities. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know all the answers and I haven't lived all the lives. Yes, racial identity is such, it is just like one part um, of like our lived experience. So, yeah, there's like, socioeconomic status which is a huge part too like you said like we both kind of come from a similar area and so diversity and inclusion there's so many other intersections to think about thank you so much Rachel for joining us having such an insightful conversation you have definitely made an impact on my life at the red and black thank you so much for having me on and um yeah I just loved have loved talking to you about everything and you know, I will also say, you know, like having you also in the newsroom as an editor, it was just so cool to, to see someone else, um, you know, representing the, you know, Asian community there, just knowing that there's someone there that can speak, you know, can speak for this community. And um, hopefully that has not felt like a burden, but I'm so proud of all you're doing and all that the Red and Black is doing. So thank you so much for having me on and I'm going to love talking to you and Glad we get to talk about this on the podcast. That was so sweet. No, so true though. Again, the story is called A Target on Our Backs, which you can read on the Bitter Southerners website. And that was the front page. 
The front page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. This episode was co-produced by Rachel Priest and myself, Sherry Leong. The front page is sponsored by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to grab your paper, and we hope you tune in next time.